Hey guys, uh, welcome back to Horror Thoughts, uh, the podcast where we give thoughts on horror. Um, this week, um, we're going to focus on Wes Craven. This is a sort of tribute to Craven. We're going to give a little bit of brief history, kind of go over the highlights of his career as a filmmaker, and just kind of chat about him. So for me, Craven is definitely like my favorite director. I don't think there's a director I like more. His films have definitely definitely impacted me more than any other director's films. And I mean, I just talk about him all the time, but Scott, what's your kind of just general opinion on Wes Craven as a director? So when it comes to Wes Craven, I'm a pretty big casual like everybody. I, I know the main movies like Last House, Nightmare, Hills Have Eyes, Scream. I've I don't know much past that. Maybe a onesies and twosies here. I might have seen one. But just in that sense, I I really love his films. I haven't seen one I haven't liked. Again, I haven't deep dived into his career. But even all the way down to, I didn't even know until I looked that he actually made Red Eye. I had no idea. I always liked that movie. So throughout his entire career from when he started, just the main movies I've always seen, I've always liked them. Every one of them. So I really enjoy what he has to offer. And when I watch him in interviews, he just seems like personally a good guy. He seems like he'd be really cool to be around. And I like that. He's not too pretentious and an artist about his stuff. He just makes what he likes. Yeah, but also still coming across, I think, very intelligent and well-spoken. So we're not going to go over every single film of his career because he had a 40-year-long career. But I have done a review of every single one of his movies on YouTube under uh, my channel, Sean Blumenshine. So if you are interested in my thoughts on all of his movies, you can check those videos out. So we're obviously going to start with his very first film. Craven didn't grow up wanting to be a filmmaker. He didn't have a huge background in movies. He came from a religious family. They didn't watch a whole lot of movies. Um, he was actually a teacher. He taught, I don't know if he was an actual like professor or if he was just a teacher, but he taught at a college. And him and his students in the, the 60s kind of started messing around with the camera, started just sort of making stuff together. And that's what got him really interested in filmmaking. And he was at a point where his teaching career wasn't particularly fulfilling. So he packed up with his family, moved to New York, and decided to become a filmmaker. That went about as well as you would expect it to. Um, he was pretty much dirt broke, taking whatever job he could, but he ended up doing some editing for Sean Cunningham, um, who was at the time kind of just making softcore porn for these theater owners that would finance and distribute his films. And these theater owners came to Cunningham and said, we want you to do a horror movie. And Cunningham turned to Wes Craven and said, well, you want to direct, can you write and direct a horror movie? The result of that was Last House on the Left, which is a pretty strong, um, if that's the word, or it's an interesting way to come into the industry. It, it definitely makes a statement. I think Craven, he was given the test of making a scary movie. He wanted to make something that was genuinely shocking and unnerving and made people feel very, very uncomfortable. Um, you did mention that this is one of the movies 
that you have seen from him. Uh, do you want to give kind of brief thoughts on it? Yeah, I think you hit a really good point. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you're talking about as a first entry, he didn't just dip his toes into the water of making a horror movie. He dove headfirst right into it. And what he came out with is a style that I personally like in movies. I really like that last house, Texas chainsaw, really under budget, grainy, gritty kind of movie. So for me personally, I really do like it. And I'm curious, I know you're not too into those kind of vibes for movies. So how, what is your take on your thoughts when you first saw this compared to the rest of Wes Craven's catalog? Where do you think this fits for you? It's a film that I can kind of, I don't want to say respect because it's not that, but I can sort of get it and I get why it's effective and it is effective. And I can sort of like look at it scientifically, I guess, and sort of be like, yeah, I understand what this is and why it works. But for me, it's not the kind of movie that I really like to watch. I don't know why it is, but anytime rape enters a movie that kind of is a big turnoff for me and I think in in the 70s with a lot of exploitation films they tended to overdo that and it can feel a little gross and a little weird and Last House isn't really an exception to that but it's weird to like criticize it for it because that's what it's trying to do like it's trying to make me feel those things but it's not something that I necessarily want to watch all yeah. the time. Those type of movies, I think they're really big in drawing a line in the sand. Like you either meet people who really like those movies or there's just not their thing. There's never really someone who kind of in they're like, yeah, I'll casually put on last house on the left. It's like, it's, it's either someone who really wants to see that stuff or likes that style or someone that you can respect it for what it is. And you can be objective and realize that it works, but it's just not your thing. And I think I think coming out with a with a film debut like that, that's a pretty bold move to start out with that kind of movie where you're like, here's the here's the line, what side are you on kind of thing. Yeah, and I think it's just kind of it's a very much of the time of stuff that was going on and it's it's very harsh and very brutal. The only thing I could really critique about it is I do think it struggles with tone, which is something that does become a big factor in Wes's movies is he always kind of tried to balance horror and humor. And it's something that he would kind of nail much later on in his career. But I mean, the absolute worst part of Last House is those cops. Yeah. Like you'll be seeing this really, really intense rape scene and it'll cut to these two just buffoons doing slapstick and it's such a whiplash and they don't go together. Yeah. And I get in theory why it's there. It's to give you like a relief. So it's not just nonstop relentless, but it's, it's a little too far and it ends up, the movie feels kind of jumbled and strange and it's hard to kind of get into the mood of it. Yeah. Not to make this a last house breakdown or episode <laughs> or anything like that, but real quick, I'm, you might have the, the knowledge of this, but you look at someone like uh, you talk about Sean Cunningham or you can look at like a Sam Raimi with Evil Dead or you can look at Romero with Night of the Living Dead. You can you hear these stories about how they had to they had such a small budget. They had to rush it. They had to make these their own and make creative ways to do this or blatantly rip off Halloween or they had these 
certain things that they had to do to get that first film out with Wes and last house. Was there some sort of, I guess, I don't know how to word it. Was he up against something and had to force it out and get it rushed? And that's what he came up with. Or how did that come about? Is it just something he made up on his own or was he pressured by uh, different distributors or producers or anything to make certain types? I think he probably just had no input at all from anybody because just those theater owners wanted, they wanted a scary movie that they could distribute and that was kind of it. And so we just wrote something that would scare him. And I think if the movie has any problems, it just stems from inexperience. It was his first time and he was, you know, he's an ambitious filmmaker. He's an intelligent filmmaker. And so we kind of maybe bit a little more off that he could chew in terms of trying <laughs> to strike that tonal balance. And any other struggles he would have had would have just been the normal low budget filmmaking stuff is that you just have no money. But there's also a freedom in that too, in that less people are interested in it while you're making it. And so there aren't as many like notes. So you can just kind of do whatever you want. And there isn't some suit being like, no, you can't do that. That's true. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an aggressive entry, but it's, <laughs> I like it. Yes. So Last House was released and got a lot of attention and had that great trailer with that tagline, like just telling yourself it's only a movie. It's only a movie, which is such good marketing. And, you know, it just freaked people out. And it was this big, big hit, which you would think, well, that's a starting point. He can now be a successful filmmaker. And it didn't go that way at all because it was such a brutal film. He kind of got blacklisted a little bit. Like people didn't want to work with him. Certainly not outside of horror because both Craven and Cunningham, they didn't want to be horror guys. They wanted to do other kinds of things. And they really struggled in the 70s to get that stuff made. Uh, Craven kind of ended up just kind of having to do some low-level work in porn. Um, he even potentially, though it has never been confirmed, there is a film called The Fireworks Woman that is a porno that was probably directed by Wes, but we don't know for sure. He's in it. He is an actor in the film. He never like does anything like oh, wow. that never happens. He, he kind of plays the devil. It's very strange. This is the weirdest movie. <laughs> it is the weirdest movie I've ever seen. Um, and then I do have a review of it on YouTube, of course, but it is bizarre because I think, and I do think it was Wes. I think Wes wrote and directed this because some of his stuff is kind of in there. There's some ties to last house. Uh, both musically and in terms of actor. And I don't even know how to describe it. It, But there's a lot of like really like shocking taboo kind of stuff. So it's clearly not trying to be super titillating. It's kind of trying to weird you out because <laughs> there's like incest, um, priest fucking, like just <laughs> all BDSM. There's all sorts of just bizarre taboos. And Craven is this like weird, like spirit devil character that sort of comes in and out. Like there's even a point where like he's talking to the main girl and he says something along the lines of, I can help you, but at a price. So obviously that kind of like devil's bargain kind of thing. And it feels like he's trying to kind of get this brother and sister like hooked up for reasons. I don't know. It's a weird, weird movie. 
that Craven obviously never owned up to. Like, even if you don't believe he directed it, like it's undeniably him in it. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't really just be like, well, no, that's not him. Like, no, it is. <laughs> he has a very distinct like face and voice. I know Wes Craven when I see him, but which is just, it's an interesting thing. Finally, after that, after doing kind of low level jobs for a while, uh, Craven relented and a producer came to him and said, you should just do another horror movie, my dude. And so he said, fine. <laughs> and that is when we got his sort of official second movie, which is The Hills Have Eyes. And that came out about five years after Last House. Um, so you've seen that one, I assume? Yes. Yes, I have seen that one. Weirdly, I think I like the remake better than the original, but I love both of them. I do enjoy the original. And it's just that he did such a good sense of making it feel like you're completely alone. Like you're just stranded with this, with these people. You're stuck with them and there's no one around. It's only you and them and you have to figure it out. There's no help coming. I like that vibe. Yeah, I haven't seen the remake. I know Craven was involved with it. He like produced it, which was cool. Um, but I love the original. I think that's a big, big highlight and kind of impressive for someone's like second movie. Like even just compared to Last House, like how much more of like a movie it feels like. It feels like a such a bigger budget. And it probably was a bigger budget than Last House, but still not huge. But I don't know. I think it's a really interesting story. It feels kind of atypical of a lot of horror movies because it sort of predates certain tropes. Like if that movie had been made five years later, some of it would be a lot more obvious, like a little more, more obvious typecasting. Whereas you kind of, you can kind of look at that cast and you won't know who's going to live and who's going to die. Yeah. You're just looking at a picture of that cast. Whereas if that had been made a little later, you'd be able to look at a picture and be like, I know exactly who's going to make it and who's That's a not. Good point. And it's just a really, really good movie, I think. And was kind of another big hit for him. And that got him a little bit more traction career wise. Um, he moved out to LA and he started getting TV movies. Um, he did one with Linda Blair called Summer of Fear. Uh, it has another name too, but I forget what it is. And Craven did a few TV movies throughout the um, late 70s and early 80s. All of them are bad. Um, none of them are good. Um, and I think Craven admitted that like he didn't put as much effort into making these TV movies because he saw them as lesser. You know, it was a job. He needed the paycheck. He learned some stuff. Um, the Summer of Fear with Linda Blair, that was the first time he shot on like 35 millimeter. And so they're significant in his career, but they're not movies I necessarily recommend watching. Summer of Fear in particular is really disappointing because it's Linda Blair and Wes Craven together. And that's just kind of a fun thing for horror fans is these two sort of icons of the genre together, but the movie's pretty weak sauce. Unless you like, you know, late 70s cheesy television, <laughs> which, you know, growing up on Kiss Meets the Phantom, I kind of do. <laughs> but um, Summer Fear's not very good. And then he did a couple things back to back. He did a movie with, I think it was Sharon Stone real early in her career called Deadly Blessing. That's very indicative of things he would do later there's a lot of elm street in that movie where you could see some of the ideas of elm street starting to kind of come out um he did swamp thing 
which is a DC Comics character. And that didn't do well in the theaters, but kind of took off on video a few years later. And then the big sort of break happens. Actually, before we get to that, circle back to Hills Have Eyes. Have you seen Hills Have Eyes Part 2? I have not. So that's a really interesting thing in that Craven started it and they shot about three-fourths of it and then they ran out of money. And so the plan was, okay, we'll edit what we got and then we'll come back and finish it. And then the producer or the distributor, someone just filled up the last 25% with footage from the first film and just crapped it out. (laughs) Um, It's very bad. Hills Have Eyes Part 2 is very bad. But... You know, the big break for Craven, of course, came in 1984 with A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is an idea he kind of pitched around for a long time, for a good couple of years, and just everybody passed on it. Nobody liked it. None of the major studios thought it would work. But a at the time, very, very small studio, New Line uh, Cinema, they picked it up and obviously hard to know what even to say like a night renowned suit is this huge massive cultural mile milestone and it's just a really really good movie yeah it's i i think that with all the slashers that were coming out especially between that period from halloween forward this was a fresh take on a genre that had been the process of beating a dead horse had already kind of begun at that point when this came out and it really revamped things to add a new element to it. And of course created a franchise that went decades with continued fans and growth. But that initial one, I think it really added a spice to a genre that was starting to kind of peter out a little bit. No slashers were definitely on the downward spiral quite a bit because they just made so many of them in such a short amount of time. Like there's a reason that fourth Friday the 13th was supposed to be the last one because everyone just kind of thought it was over and that this was like a past fad. And then Craven kind of came in and he kind of just redefined the whole thing, which is the thing he's done like multiple times in his career. It's like just come in and just completely like define what a genre is, which is impressive if you do it once, but he did it in like three separate decades. Yeah. And, in Freddy Krueger created one of like the villains, like the movie villains of all time. Yeah. It's kind of weird to think that he started with Cunningham and then they both ended up with two of the big three horror icons by the end of it, which is, it's, it's weird to think that they, their paths cross. And then 10 years later, they would almost be synonymously linked to characters that shaped horror yeah, no, definitely. So a weird small world. So Elm Street's success helped Craven a lot getting into uh, the mainstream. He did a couple of studio films back to back, a movie called Deadly Friend. Have you seen that? I so that's not. a that's a weird thing where he was trying to make more of like a family, more of a family film. And it ended up, you know, the studio, because Elm Street was so big, they wanted like a horror movie. But it's basically this dude has like a robot because of course he does. And he has this girlfriend, both the robot and the girlfriend end up dying. So he kind of like merges them together. 
And then yeah. that goes, doesn't go well. Cause then it's just this like zombie robot girl that starts killing people. Yeah. That seems very of the times because it's, <laughs> it's made in it's 86. very eighties, 86. Yeah. yeah very, Late very eighties was all about their robots for whatever, even Rocky four was like, yep. Oh, we got to throw a robot in it. Robot. <laughs> short circuit was huge. I don't know. <laughs> Someone saw short circuit and went, what if we combined we, this with Freddy Krueger with everything? <laughs> yeah. And like, there are clearly like dream sequences in there that the studio asked for. They were like, well, you're the nightmare on Elm street guy we have to have nightmares. <laughs> and so there are these very obviously added in nightmare sequences just to sort of make it feel more like Elm street. Um, but then his second sort of big studio film through Universal, I forget who did Deadly Friend. That might have been Warner Brothers. It is. Oh, thank you. Oh. Um, but through Universal, he did The Serpent and the Rainbow, which deals with this very, very scary urban legend of zombies and voodoo and things that kind of go on in third world countries where there's this drug that makes you like appear clinically dead. And you get buried, but you're alive. And it's just a really like scary kind of idea. That's always been this sort of like urban legend. I don't know if it actually happens or it doesn't, but it's always sort of been this thing. Have you seen that movie, The Serpent and the Rainbow? No, it's on my list. I, I've talked about it before, but growing up, I used to always watch on Bravo on Halloween. They do the 100 scariest movie moments. Mm -hmm. And this was always on one of them. And I can remember... Mm -hmm. Eli Roth was talking about it and he said, after seeing that movie, it's why I've chosen when I pass, I'll be cremated because I don't want <laughs> a chance of a serpent in a rainbow situation. And so I've, I've always had it on my list, but I've never sat and watched it. Yeah, um, I don't love the movie overall, but it's definitely interesting. It's got some really creepy moments and it's just sort of fun to see Craven with a bigger budget. Because it's, it's kind of a horror version of Indiana Jones. And so there's a lot of fun in that. And then he got a really interesting deal. A company started up called Alive Entertainment. Um, run by Alice Cooper's manager. Who decided he wanted to get into the film business. But he was specifically looking at VHS sales. And he noticed that anytime John Carpenter's or Wes Craven's names were on tapes, they sold more. And so he approached both directors and gave them a two-picture deal where they got to do whatever they wanted. No studio notes, no nothing. They just got to do whatever. And Craven was obviously excited about that because he had just made these two studio films that he had kind of had a hard time on. And so the results of that are Shocker and The People Under the Stairs. Um. So you were sort of saying before we recorded, if I would recommend a film for people that are more casually aware of Craven, but maybe not super hardcore, if you haven't seen either of these films, Shocker and People Under the Stairs, these are definitely the two I would recommend. Shocker is 80s as fuck. <laughs> it is ridiculous. I don't really get what's happening like it is ridiculous it is basically about there's this serial killer he is put on death row and he's giving he is given um the electro shock death what do they call that he's electrocuted he's given the electric chair there you go and somehow he uses black magic 
combined with getting the electric chair to become like an electric ghost monster. And so he can just, he like <laughs> passes through electricity and can like possess people using body electricity. Right on. It is really dumb and it's really cheesy, but it is so much fun. Like it is a ridiculously good time. It's got a great soundtrack. Um, Paul Stanley of Kisses on it. Oh, Megadeth. Right on. Oh, it's great. People on the Stairs is a more legitimately very good movie. Have you seen People Under the Stairs? I have not. The premise of People Under the Stairs is that there's a couple of people, uh, these two guys, they're they're thieves, they're robbers. And they sort of conscript this neighborhood kid into being their being their lookout, being their kind of um distraction, their decoy to kind of get like the homeowners to come to the door and he'll like try to sell them like boy scout cookies or something so that they can kind of scope out the house and they pick this house that is owned by kind of these very rich landlords that kind of own a lot of the neighborhood you know apartment complexes and when they get inside they get trapped because the homeowners are batshit insane they have people locked in the basement who are basically just like pale like hills have eyes Hills have eyes style cannibals. And this kid is just trapped in this house and can't get out. And it's a very fun, very intense movie. And so those are the two that I would very much recommend for people. It's it sound, kind of sounds like the collector or don't breathe before the collector and don't breathe where you like you're the character you're looking at is starting out as the bad guy and then they get into the situation and you realize, Oh my God, it's, they're not even close to as bad as the, what they just walked into. I would be shocked if the guy that made don't breathe wasn't directly influenced by people under the stairs. Like I would be shocked if he was like, no, I never thought of that. And just you explaining it sounded (laughs) identical to don't. That's the first thing I thought of was don't breathe. It's, I would say it's a little more intense than don't breathe just because the people in there are just out there. Like they're weird. Like it's very over the top, but in kind of a really fun way. Would you say, cause you said that they just wanted to see Wes Craven's name on it. So they were like, you mm-hmm. can make whatever you want. No strings mm-hmm. attached. Would you say that is peak Wes Craven for you with no studio notes, no nothing, just his brain? Or would you say other points of his career where he actually was underneath a major studio giving him notes made his better work? I mean, it's tough to say because, I mean, it's not a shock to you what I think his best film is. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, But there weren't a ton of studio notes on that one either. Mm. So even though that was like a major player in terms of the studio system in the mid 90s um i don't know because he didn't make that many studio films is the sort of thing like new line cinema became a major major studio but they weren't when he made elm street that's true that's true you know so really the only big studio films he did were deadly friend and serpent and the rainbow okay and you could certainly i think see the difference in that there are advantages to that. He had more money and could do a lot more things, but you can sort of see the hamperings of it as well. But he definitely, I think, operated better when 
producers and studio notes weren't so prevalent because that's something that plagues, you know, and we'll talk about when we get there, but his films in the 2000s, that's something that becomes a real big problem for him as Miramax and Dimension got bigger and bigger and bigger. But we can sort of circle back to that because to me, peak Craven is this mid 90s period where he makes New Nightmare, which I think is the best of the Elm Street series. Um, then he made Vampire in Brooklyn, which is very bad, but like we don't have to talk about that one. <laughs> and doesn't, then have, sc- doesn't that have Charlie Murphy in it? Am I thinking? No, of it's right Eddie movie? Murphy. Is it? It's Eddie. Oh, yeah. Jesus. I think Charlie Murphy helped write it with Eddie, but um, no, that's Eddie. Oh, oh yeah, it's, right here. Film script was written with Murphy's older brother Charlie. Yeah. Okay. It's it's a that's a very interesting movie if you haven't seen it because. The reason Wes did it is because he wanted to make a comedy. And the reason Eddie Murphy made it is because he wanted to make a horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) And so these two guys are in this for totally different reasons. And it shows that movie is weird and does not work. It's quite bad, um, which is unfortunate because they could have been a good team. And there's some decent stuff in there. I was like, that could have worked. But they were just on two totally different pages. And you can tell. Um, but after that, of course, he gets Scream, which, again, I've talked about on this podcast. So we don't have to talk about it a whole lot other yeah. than, you know, I just love it to death. Rightfully of course, so. Yeah. And of course, he got a big franchise out of it. Those are his most financially successful movies. You know, Ghostface is this huge icon. Like, comparatively to the other slashers, I think the, the 80s ones stayed in the pop culture more. Like Ghostface isn't nearly as prevalent as Michael or Freddy or Jason. Like if you go to like a horror con or just shop around during Halloween, you will not see nearly as much Ghostface as you will those other three characters and some others. Which is weird because a successful Halloween movie or a successful Friday the 13th movie was making like 20 to $30 million in total. Scream made like $200 million like just huge massive hits but they they're very of their time in a weird way so it's curious to see how they're going to try and bring it back because i don't think it's going to work but we don't have to talk about that (laughs) um so he does the screen movies part of his deal with doing the screen movies is that he got to make a non-horror movie like that was his big deal with the weinsteins is i will make scream 2 and scream 3 but you have to let me do anything else in between And that became Music of the Heart, which is a biopic about this violin teacher in Harlem who taught these sort of um, underprivileged kids, if that's the right term, poor kids, like people in sort of bad neighborhoods and sort of how the music sort of helped them. Have you seen Music of the Heart? No, I watched your review of it, though. That's (laughs) all. That's all. I'd, I'd never heard of the movie until then. See, that's funny because the first time I had seen it was in middle school in band class because I took band in middle school. And so like, that's like one of the movies we watched, you know, during like, Oh, it's, let's just watch a movie for fun. Um, and it, I didn't realize till later that it was Wes. Um, not a good movie, but if it made him feel good, um, he earned fine. it. <laughs> yeah. He earned that. He earned making a boring movie about a person that I thought was kind of a dork, but whatever. <laughs> a, dork isn't the right word because it's just kind of how Meryl Streep plays the character. I don't know that person in real life, but I, 
the character as presented in the movie, I found really just, uh, just gross and awful. And so then we, you know, at this point, we're kind of in the 2000s and this is probably the low point of Craven's career. It's sort of the last decade that he was active as a filmmaker in the years leading up to his death. Um, he did Cursed, which is a werewolf, a werewolf movie. I didn't even say it right, saying it slow. <laughs> um, uh, starring Christina Ricci and one of my least favorite actors, Jesse Eisenberg. Really? Not a Jesse Eisenberg fan? Nope. <laughs> um, Not even in, uh, oh, what was that movie he was in? Uh, 20 Minutes or Less? I like that movie. I have no idea what that is. Oh, that's a good one. He's like a, it's a comedy. It's like a bank. He, oh. or he's got a bomb strap to him and he's got, hmm. it's a good one. But oh. what, this is a side tangent. Why don't you like Jesse Eisenberg? Now I got to know. He just kind of annoys me. Like, I think his whole kind of just like manic kind of mannerisms. I think he kind of does the same thing every movie. And he I just, can see that. I just find it obnoxious. And I don't think I've seen a movie with him that I've liked. And so like, it's one of those things where it's like, maybe if I finally saw a movie with him where I was like, oh, that's a good movie. I'd lighten up. Cause I haven't seen Zombieland. Yeah. And I've avoided it because of him. It's a good movie. That's worth watching. <laughs> yeah. Even if you don't like him, Woody Harrelson's good in that movie. That's a yeah, good movie. Yeah. And I love Emma Stone. So like, I'm going to watch it eventually. Yeah. I think that'd be a good episode. Having you watch Zombieland. Getting yeah. back to us. Might as well just watch both of them. I've never seen the second sequel, one either. So. Double tap or whatever. Yeah. I never saw it. Um, but cursed is you were talking about studio interference. That is one of the biggest like studio fucked up a movie I have ever seen. The story behind cursed is just dumb. Um, Kevin Williamson wrote it, who wrote the first two scream films. And so it was kind of like the two of them reteaming and kind of doing for slashers, what they did doing, doing for the universal monsters, what they did for slasher films. Like that's kind of re-examine this and bring it back. And it just, they had to do three different sets of reshoots. They were losing actors and characters left and right. Um, they shot an R-rated movie with practical effects. And then one of the Weinsteins was like, nah, that's dumb. Let's replace it with CGI and we'll make it a PG-13. And the resulting film is just a fucking mess. That's such is, a shame. I love Christina Ricci. She's great. She manages to still kind of work somehow, which I don't totally understand, but <laughs> she's just so good at what she does that she she still kind of works and you can still kind of get interested in that character. But man, the movie's just in shambles. The twist of like who it is and what's going on is one of the worst I've ever seen. It's so disappointing and so just like, really, that's what this is about? And it's such a shame. And, and who knows what it was originally, because we don't know a whole lot about it. And we'll probably never see the footage, unfortunately. But it's just such a waste. The Weinsteins were so bad at their jobs. Yeah. Beyond being monsters. Yeah, be, besides being horrible human beings. Yeah. <laughs> also just really bad at their jobs. Yeah. Because um, everything wrong with Scream 3 and 4 is directly their fault too. But we don't have to get into that. Um, after that is when he did Red Eye, which is a movie that not a lot of people know was him. A lot of people have seen that movie and it's this like really good effective thriller, but a lot of people don't realize it's him, which is kind of interesting. 
Yeah, I liked that movie for sure. It's been probably since it came out since I've seen it, but I remember watching it and really enjoying it because it's so claustrophobic almost being stuck in that environment with someone. And you're like, I, it's not that I want to go somewhere, but I'm not. It's I physically cannot go anywhere right now. It's a movie that's like instantly good, just kind of from its premise. Like the movie doesn't have to do anything. It obviously is executed very well, but it doesn't even have to do that because you're so instantly on board because it's like, this is such a good idea for a movie. Oh yeah. It's, it's, I can't believe no one had done something like that up to that point, honestly, when you think about it, but yeah. it's, it's so smothering is how I felt when I watched it. I just yeah. felt confined. Like, oh, I couldn't imagine being in that situation. And those two actors are just so good. Fantastic. Like, it, like the movie lives or dies by them and like how they do. And they're both so good. Um, and so that was his last movie for a few years. And then he made two more before his death, which were my soul to take. And then his final film was scream Four. I've never heard of my soul to take. So that came out about 2010 and I actually was very aware of it because this was at a point where I was so tuned in on horror that I was aware that there was a Wes Craven movie. It might have gotten a theatrical release because I know it was in 3D um, yeah, back when that was like a thing. It made a box office of $22 million, so it had <laughs> some sort of release. Well, yeah, that's not bad depending on how much it cost. $25 million. That's not good. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad. Okay. <laughs> They spent $25 million on that? Oh, must have been the 3D. They yeah. just spent an insane amount on that 3D. Um, but I didn't watch it till it was on DVD. It's okay. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I think when I did my review on YouTube, I think I even struggled there because it's such a, I don't even know. Basically, there's a serial killer. And it's this guy that has a multiple personality disorder. So one of his personalities is a serial killer is the serial killer and his, his like main personality isn't aware of it but the serial killer personality comes out and kills his family and then the cops all show up and they kill him they kill the killer and obviously the guy they don't just kill that one personality yeah but somehow and i don't get it but the soul each personality has a soul that is reincarnated as a baby that night. There are seven babies born that night, seven personalities. And so each one of the personalities is this like new baby. Like a reincarnation? I guess. But then the killer was the eighth personality. So one of the seven babies gets two. Oh, so you don't know which one. Yeah. And so like one of the seven kids is the reincarnation of the killer. But it doesn't feel like reincarnation in the sense of, you know, the idea of reincarnation, you're not the same person over and over again. It's just sort of a past life. It comes across like the same person, like at least the killer does. Yeah. Where the killer is just the exact same person he was 20 years ago. He's just in a new body. And I don't really get it. It's not, again, sort of the opposite of Red Eye, Mm. where, you know, Red Eye is just instantly like a really good, simple premise. My soul to take is kind of needlessly complicated 
and not that interesting. Like you just say like, oh, it's reincarnated souls. It's like, okay, what about it? Yeah, it's trying to be more deep than it should. Yeah, and it's just, it's not compelling and it doesn't look great. Um, It's not acted particularly well. There's a nugget of a decent story in there where the original killer's daughter, she lived and it sort of had to grow up with like, my father's a fucking serial killer that the town kind of buried and won't talk about. And so there's some interesting stuff with her, but she's shoved to the background hard, which is weird. And then of course we've talked about Scream 4 before, which was intended to be the start of a new Scream trilogy, but then Scream 4 just didn't make the money it needed, unfortunately, or, or fortunately. What is the reason I'm just looking at the time frames that these movies came out? So if, obviously if you look through the 80s, you know, 81, 82, 84, 86, then you get to the 90s, 91, 94, 95, 96, 97, and then you get to the 2000s. It's 2000, then 2005, then 2010 and 11. Was there a reason that he ever spoke on as to why there was such a lull, I would say, or not as frequent of releases? Was he just burnt out on the film business? Did, did that ever get touched? Some of that is, of course, just going to be age. You know, like he wasn't a young man when he started in the yeah. 70s. Like he wasn't in his 20s. He was like 30 something when he made Last House. I think he might have been early, early 30s. Um, I don't know why there's such a big gap between Scream 3 and Cursed. Uh, actually, I do, because Cursed took so long to make oh. because they kept reshooting it. You know, they they messed with it so much that probably was intended to come out in like 2003 and then just had to be redone over and over and over again. And that Wes talk, ha, did talk about this. Cursed hit, hurt his career real bad because there was a movie that he was set to do, I think for DreamWorks. No, because he did Red Eye for DreamWorks. So it was for a different studio. But he backed out of it last minute to do Cursed. Mm. And then Cursed went so badly. He took a lot of the blame for that. And it he talked about it, it was really hard for him to get work okay. after Cursed. Because I could, I could understand 2010 and 11, you know, he's getting... He's definitely up there in age and he's getting mm-hmm. sicker. And, and so I can see the decline there. But, you know, you're looking coming off 96, 97, 99, 2000 up to Scream 3. Mm-hmm. You could I didn't know if maybe he had just had such a burnout from just going back to back to back or like you just touched on that. He kind of was blackballed, I guess, in a sense, you could say off of making Cursed. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think Cursed was kind of the big point where his career got derailed. It's it's kind of a shame that you could come off, you know, scream two in 97. And then eight years later, you make a movie that almost erases everything you've done through your entire career to the industry. Cause they don't care. You're not making money. They're like, we don't care about Elm street scream Hills have eyes. None of that. Sorry. You made cursed. And everything wrong with that movie isn't his fault. Like there, there is a definite, person or people that you can point to and be like you're the ones that messed this up yeah i mean and also you got to think he's directed two four six eight however many movies he's done (laughs) you're gonna have some that are they're just not gonna hit the same as others you only have so much bandwidth to be able to create and direct and taking notes from these people and this people and we got to cut this scene to make this rating and 
you can only do so much to a point where they're not all going to be screams. They're not all going to be hills have eyes, stuff like that. Well, and on that point, I think Wes is a really weird director and that he he's one that kept kind of getting better and better at it as he went. A lot of directors are like amazing early on. And then at a certain point, it just feels like it's gone. You look at like a Toby Hooper starting with Texas Chainsaw, then see where he ended up by the end. You're like, oh, when's happened? the last time John Carpenter made a movie, directed a movie that anybody liked, that anybody cared about? Yeah. The only, it's been a long time. The only director I can think in that same lane, that same time period is like Sam Raimi with Evil Dead, Spider-Man, uh, Drag Me to Hell. Like he, he kind of stayed along but not nearly as prolific as a Wes Craven in my opinion as far as staying relevant for that long he had different Sam had different spurts in different decades but with Craven when you look at his body of work he pretty much owned the 90s that's kind of that's especially the late 90s and you could just yeah. see he had his mark in the 70s he made Nightmare in the 80s he made Scream in the 90s so he was always very prolific in what he was doing unlike Every other director from that time, like you touched on John Carpenter, anyone from that era, he kind of stuck out more than all of them, which is pretty, pretty crazy to say. Yeah. Um, so a thing to end on, I mean, everybody knows what my favorite Craven film is, which is Scream. And I would say my least favorite is probably Cursed. Some of those TV movies are pretty bad. So, but taking those out because they are television movies, um, I would say Cursed is the worst of his proper theatrical films. Um, of the ones I've seen, I, I'd probably have to say Scream. Scream is probably my favorite. It's that or Nightmare again. I'm pretty casual with it, but I really like those. And I like what Nightmare spawns. So that's kind of, I probably lean more to that. I just like the idea of it. My least favorite of the ones I've seen Again, I haven't seen any of the bad ones, so I might try to <laughs> I might try to avoid those. Uh, probably, probably Last House. Even though I like it for what it is, but just in comparison to Hills Have Eyes, Elm Street, Scream, those I would say that's probably the weakest. But it makes sense. It's his first movie. It's the cheapest. It's the roughest. So probably Last House, just on the ones I've seen. But I also haven't seen Vampire in Brooklyn <laughs> or Cursed. So yeah. I think that about covers our main topic for this episode. So we're going to move into a quick little end segment that I'm hoping to kind of add into the end of every episode. Oh, which sorry. Is a- Before I didn't mean to cut you up. Before we uh, leave Wes Craven, it's inevitable. Okay. Sorry. Someday he's going to get a remake. What Wes Craven film, whenever it may be, would you want to see get remade? If it's going to get made right, like by you, it's going to be a good film. <laughs> not, not we don't know who, what director we're going to have, or what actors, but if it's going to be a legit good movie out of his catalog, what's the one you'd want to see get redone? Well, so several of his movies have already been remade. Um, Last House, Hills, Elm Street. Yeah. They are currently threatening us with a People Under the Stairs remake. Um. Scream should never be remade. You could argue the TV show is a bit of a reboot. I see no reason to remake Scream. Um, Shocker wouldn't be a good candidate either. It's two of its time. It's so much of what works about that movie is its time period. 
just being the late eighties and the eighties being what they were that like taking it out of the eighties would be absolutely no fun. Um, I would say serpent under the rainbow would be the best candidate because it's just such a good idea. And there's some really good stuff in there, but the movie doesn't quite gel. Like it's not like a great movie, but there's potential in it. And I think it's something you could really make work by trying it again. Okay. Yeah. I was curious. Cause it's inevitable. It's how time works. It, something will get remade by his and, yeah. You know, sometimes in our generation, we'll see movies that we think are new. And then you look into it and you realize, oh my God, that was made in like 1952. Yeah. And you didn't even realize it was a remake. So someday there's going to be kids that are going to see one of these movies that they aren't even going to know that it was originally a Wes Craven film. And I think, yeah, the, all the main ones have been remade. So that's why I was yeah. curious what your thoughts of if you could make one that hasn't been that would actually be worth watching. So Serpent and the Rainbow. I need to watch that one. I've, I've always meant to. But sorry, yeah. I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to cut no. off your last segment of the show, but I was very curious. No, no, that was a good that was a good thing to ask. Is there anything else? I should have asked. Is there anything else you wanted to cover on Wes? No, no, that's it. Okay, so now that we've got all that out of the way, we'll go into this sort of last segment, which is just a quick sort of like horror news segment just to sort of briefly touch on topics that maybe are interesting but maybe not interesting enough for a full episode so just kind of to give some brief thoughts on i've got a couple things and if there's anything you've heard that you want to talk about um you can also chime in so the big story in recent news is it was it was announced that blumhouse along with universal are doing an exorcist reboot and we've heard about this for a little while but we recently got some confirmation on it. David Gordon Green is going to direct it. He directed the most recent reboot of Halloween, as well as its two sequels, Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. Um, this Exorcist reboot will also be a trilogy because of course it will be a trilogy. Um, like Halloween, it is a decades later sequel. That is a direct sequel to the original film that will ignore all other exorcist movies and it will see the return of the original star not linda blair but um the woman who played linda blair's mom whose name i am blanking on because i, I am a it. fake fan <laughs> but she's gonna return to do something fight pazuzu i guess i don't know um you can tell by my tone that this is not a thing i'm excited about yeah, the Exorcist I, is great. We don't need any more. It's a great movie. Leave it alone. What are you possibly going to add? Yeah, this one has to be torn because we've talked about it on the show. Exorcist is one of the movies that shaped me for horror. It could be my number one. That's the first time I ever got scared as a kid. First movie that messed me up. And I also really love the directing style of the new Halloween and what he brought to it but I'm just so petrified that the thing about Halloween is that it had already been kind of ran into the ground with so many different sequels and remakes and stuff where you're like, this one might be a good one. It might be a bad one, but I'll go see it because it's not going to be Halloween five. So, I mean, I'll go check it out but with the exorcist minus their terror, the worst sequel of all time. They had a decent third edition and then horrible prequels that kind of went under the rug, thankfully. So to yeah. see an official remake of it, I'm 50-50. I'm 
nervous because I love the original so much, but I like the director and I really hope that he can do something with it. Yeah. Jason Blum um, said that skeptics will be surprised. All right. And maybe I have zero interest. There was an exorcist show recently that I never watched because why would I watch that? (laughs) Why would I watch that? It actually got really good reviews. Um, Really? I never checked it out, but it was pretty high praise. All right. Maybe I was, I was skeptical myself as well. I was like, I can't. I agree with your take on the other Exorcist movies that you kind of ran through. Exorcist 2 is whoo, uh, yeah. something else, man. Oh my uh, God. We could do a whole episode <laughs> on how horrible that movie is. Jesus. It might be fun. I talked about this on my live stream. I just did on my YouTube channel about doing like watch alongs that way. That might be fun to do together. And that could be an interesting one to do. I would love that to do a watch along with that. Movie. Balls to that movie is bonkers. The worst. It's. I can't even start talking about it. I'll get mad. It's ridiculous. Um, the next bit of news is very relevant to this episode and personally exciting to me. Um, this year is the 25th anniversary of the original Scream movie. And so we are getting a 25th anniversary 4K release, uh, 4K Blu-ray. That'll come out in October. I'm trepidatious of it um, because I have been pretty disappointed with a lot of 4K transfers of older movies. I think the 4K transfer of Halloween looks pretty bad. (laughs) Um, I watched a comparison video that compared the Blu-ray for Batman Returns to the 4K of Batman Returns. And I thought the Blu-ray looked a lot better. And it's a thing with these 4K releases where they're losing a lot of their color and their definition. And we've seen some screen grabs from the Scream 4K where they're too warm. They're too, like they lost a lot of that blue, that kind of eerie blue that a lot of the nighttime scenes had. And they're very, way too bright. It's just very weird looking. But those screen grabs are from a trailer on YouTube. That's not necessarily what it will look like on your 4K television. Yes. Yeah. And I'm going to buy it anyway because I own Scream on every format. Super so, fan. Like, I'm going to buy it anyway. And it's a cool cover. So, like, whatever. Uh, that 4K will also apparently have some kind of preview. No, no, it won't. I'm, I skipped to my next thing. Along with that, the original Scream is getting re released into theaters. Uh, Fathom Events is doing a one or maybe two night thing where you can go see the original Scream. Um, hopefully my local AMC will have it. I believe it is October 10th and October 11th. Uh, the 4K Blu-ray comes out around that same time. And this Fathom event screening will be our first our first look at Scream 5. There do will be you, some kind of Scream 5 preview. Do you hope that it has the exact same energy as they do for the stab <laughs> opening in Scream 2? Do you hope it's would, like that? Because... I've seen it so many times. Yes, that is an okay environment if I've never seen a movie before. If it's my first time seeing a movie and you're being that obnoxious and loud, you need to shut up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Just like for like an anniversary screening, no, that would sound like a blast. Like everybody in costume and running around. It would never be allowed because of obviously the recent yeah. theater shootings that have been going on for a long time now. So like you can't wear costumes at theaters anymore. 
but in a less awful timeline where we could dress up at the movies yes i would absolutely do that yeah i'm not a paranoid person i'm not superstitious but there'd be a little part of me that'd be like i'm not going to the restroom and i'm not putting yeah. my head up against the stall i can <laughs> promise you that as if that was a thing you would yeah, ever do. I, I do that every other movie. I'm like, let me hear what's going on over. What's going on over film. there? Did he have enchiladas or? <laughs> let me play the guessing game. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on from that, my final story that I have. I mean, there's probably other stuff, but like this is the last big thing I saw. We have seen our first official stills from the "I Know What You Did Last Summer" reboot television show. Because there is apparently an I Know What You Did Last Summer reboot television show. <laughs> One, haven't heard of it. Two, won't watch it. So that's... <laughs> um, it will be on Amazon Prime. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and the pictures, it looks like a straight remake of the movie. Like some of the pictures just look identical, just different actors, obviously. Yeah. But, but I guess it's just going to be TV show length. I have no idea what's going on. No, I wish they would have brought back the old actors and put them in the day. They're just all in their 40s and 50s, still trying <laughs> you to figure see out. Freddie Fr you want to see Freddie Prince Jr. take on the fisherman again? Yeah, let's do it. I'd love to watch it. I'll watch seasons of that. Bring it on. I remember what you did 20 summers ago. <laughs> I know what you did 26 summers ago. I didn't forget. Yeah, I'd watch that. <laughs> That'd be funny. Yeah, I don't see the point in redoing I Know What You Did Last Summer. No, it was no. a book first. So if someone was coming along and be like, I want to adapt the book again, because the movie's very different, I'd be like, okay, I can get into that. But it does just look like it is the movie, just so I, in TV show form. I just had this idea randomly, right? Like literally right now, but thinking about these TV show remakes, how long until they make a Final Destination TV series and each episode is them trying to prevent one of the characters from dying by the end of the season? <laughs> it would be boring as hell. Awful. Because it'd, be, it'd be too long. Yeah. And that's the issue with doing this. Like, Child's Play is about to be a TV show. Like, that's coming out this year, I think. And it's like, why? <laughs> yeah. Why are we doing this? I think further horror movie TV shows using the classic franchises it kind of depends on one being successful. You know, they did a scream one, it bombed and people didn't like it. So it got canceled. We'll see how child's play does. We'll see how I know what you did last summer does. But if those movies, if those TV shows don't do well, then it's less likely, but if they blow up and just become huge somehow, then yeah, we'll probably see a lot of them. Well, if you don't got any more horror news, I'll, I'll touch on a couple things. Okay. So I'm going to touch on just films that are upcoming that, I, that I've mm. been kind of looking at that I've been waiting for. Uh, James Wan is back making another movie that's not thankfully a part of the Conjuring universe <laughs> or the Saw universe in any way, which is insane. I love James Wan in certain movies and other ones I can't stand. But he's got a new one coming out called Malignant. It comes out September oh. 10th. And uh, it should it, it's about this girl from what I can gather from the little snippets they have. It's about this girl who can kind of see premonitions and visions of these murders and so i guess she's got to try and she's dealing with those demons and figuring it out but yeah it it says it'll be on hbo max as well as a theatrical release mm -hmm. uh halloween kills you already touched on that yeah uh edgar wright who made baby driver scott pilgrim versus the world uh Shaun of the dead he's making 
I guess more of like a psychological thriller, but the trailer looked really good. It's called Last Night in Soho, and it's got Anya Taylor-Joy, whom I love. Hmm. And yeah, it comes out October 29th. They haven't given too much exactly to what it is, but she ends up going back in time, and it's like a psychological thing. But I like Edgar Wright's movies, and I love Anya Taylor-Joy, so I'm really looking forward to that one. And uh, for apparently, I didn't... I guess on this list, if you're a Resident Evil fan, they got a new Resident Evil coming out, but I don't care about those movies at all. So I uh, circle back real quick because we haven't talked about it. Um, you know, we touched that Halloween Kills is happening, but do you have any thoughts on the trailer? Uh, no, I, I've I'm trying to stay away from it and I'm just want to oh. watch it clean slate. <laughs> like I know that's like a probably not the right thing to do, but I don't want to start trying to guess what happens. I just mm-hmm. want Anthony Michael Hall is in it. In what? Halloween Kills. Oh, I have no idea. Dang, Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, is he playing Tommy Doyle? Yes. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. (laughs) No, I'm reading it right here. It says, that's crazy. Okay. Because the Tommy Doyle, the kid that played Tommy in the original, he's like the one actor they didn't bring back. Yeah, it's kind of odd. Like everybody else, it's the same actor because they brought a lot of people back. I mean, I guess I should watch the trailer. I mean, how big of a I will say this. Um, so the script leaked a long time ago during COVID and I didn't read it, but people on Reddit were saying that who read the script, that the trailer kind of spoils some stuff, Mm. but I don't know if you would recognize that if you you hadn't read the script. Okay. But they, they did say that the final shot of the movie is in the trailer. It's kind of odd that it comes out October 15th. Like they didn't oh, push I thought it was back. like the 28th. This one says October 15th on mine. It might maybe oh. they changed it, but it seems like they would move it back. I am really curious Halloween. to see if it actually comes out. Not just that movie, but not to get into like political stuff. But just the reality is this Delta variant COVID is kind of back on the rise again. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like in theaters, I get you. Yeah. Or if they just, because they don't seem to want to put it to streaming. They want box office. Yeah, this is probably a good topic for another episode, but I'd yeah. really love to hear your thoughts on like the streaming versus theatrical releases and where you think it's going to mm-hmm. go in the future. Because yeah. the one thing the last year has showed is how booming streaming can get and how mm-hmm. frequent you can put products out back to back to back to back. But also how different movies can feel. Yeah, there are movies that would have had a better reception had they been released theatrically because they were meant to be seen on like a big screen and just the scope of it when you're on your fucking couch typing on your phone. Yeah, it's a whole different thing. Like like I saw A Quiet Place 2 the other weekend, loved Mm -hmm. it, but it was one of those things where, you know, you're watching it and it's one of those movies where you really get drawn in. And then, you know, it's paused because a baby's crying. And then you play it for a bit and it's paused because someone's got to go to the restroom. And that's it's like, I want, that would have had such a different feel with just a dark room. You feel the mm-hmm. actual loud surround sound around you. Really, yeah. So I I see both sides of it. It's, it's yeah, weird. I mean, that could th- be a thing we can dive into. Yeah, another later. episode, yeah. Um, I will mention one more movie that's upcoming since you kind of, out of the list but you forgot to mention Candyman. see i've never Candy- seen the original Candyman reboots out in like god i think a week all right i gotta get like, the I original think it's like, done tonight it's great 
like I haven't seen the other like the original sequels, but I've seen the original Candyman movie and it's really good. Here, I'll look it up. Let me see when the new one comes out. I think like really soon. Uh, August 26th is the earliest release I'm getting. Yeah. Which is two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. So not oh, next no Thursday, but the time. Thursday after. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And that, that one, as of now, is a theater release, mm-hmm. but it says dates. Right underneath it says dates possible to change due to health guideline concerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I who's doing that? Like the studio. Is that Blumhouse too? It is. Let me see if it tells me. Directed by Nia under Jordan Peele's Monkey Paul Studios. So I guess Jordan Peele made his own studio. Yeah. But it's got to have some big distributor. Like yeah, I'm sure. Uh, it's not telling me. But I'm going to have to watch Candyman this week. So that way I can watch that and then watch the remake. And we can talk about that because I've never seen the original. Yeah. Do you have anything else you wanted to go over? No. No, I don't got anything else. Okay, so I think that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Um, like I said, if you are interested in more detailed thoughts on each of Craven's movies, you can go to my YouTube channel, Sean Blumenshine. I reviewed each of his films. There's a playlist, uh, the Wes Craven retrospective that you can go through. Um, you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, also, just my name, Sean Blumenshine. You can also follow Scott on Instagram, Partial Artist. Partial Artist. I'm gonna do that every time. <laughs> it's all right. Every time a partial artist podcast on Instagram. And also obviously check out his podcast, partial artist. There it is. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, before we go, I got to touch on, I could see the analytics of our podcast and see how many listeners we have. So y'all should definitely email us some questions or ideas or some comments or something. Cause I can see y'all are listening. I can see the numbers. But we're getting no <laughs> positive. We're getting no feedback from you. So if you got anything you want to tell us, anything you want to let us know, by all means, email us. It's linked in the description, as well as I found out this cool feature that our podcast distributor has is that you can submit voice memos to us. Like we like we'd be able to hear hmm. their messages. They leave kind of like a voicemail, and we could answer y'all's questions that way. So whatever y'all, if y'all have topics y'all want to hear, questions y'all have, y'all want to let us know your rankings of things that we rank and how wrong we are. And you want to tell us how cursed is the best Wes Craven film ever made? You should uh, let us know. But Vampire and Brooklyn fans came out of the woodwork when I did my YouTube <laughs> review. There were a couple of people in my comments that were like, "This is a great movie." It's like, what? Damn, this movie has fans. That's mean, but like, that surprised me. What is the worst attack you've had of fans? Was it people who were coming at you saying that music from the Elders the best Kiss <laughs> album ever? Because there's a group of people. Yeah. That's the worst. That, that's the worst. That I got a lot of some pretty like mean spirited stuff for yeah. not liking the elder. I like that just album. calling me dumb <laughs> and like not getting it. It's like, no, I get it. That's the problem. <laughs> I'm I don't mind the album. It's fine, but like there are some people who swear by it. They're like, you mm-hmm. don't understand. I'm like, I do. It's kind of like the wall, but worse. I'll just go listen to the wall. It's fine. I don't need a concept album. Well, and I got like one of the lyrics wrong, like just a line wrong. And like literally every other day, there's a new person correcting me. It's like, <laughs> it's all over the comment section. Like, I know <laughs> I pinned a comment at the top that like, yes, I see. I know I'm, I got a word wrong. I'm sorry. I heard it differently. My bad. 
stop <laughs> commenting this. Yeah, those pe- people get crazy. You miss say one thing, they're like, ah, uh, you hardly are a person because you miss said that. You you shouldn't have any <laughs> friends. You shouldn't have any love. It's insane what people are like. He actually said they instead of there, you idiot. Let me tell you why you're wrong. It's insane. But yeah, I don't got anything else. That's uh, that's all I got. No, yeah. 